Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 74. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. And today I wanted to give an example of how I personally use Precision Hydration. Uh, I just did my first race of the season, uh, Duathlon 10 kilometer running, 60 kilometers cycling, and 10 kilometers running again. Powerman Portugal, and that race went very, very well. So, and one of the main purposes for me in doing that race was to practice and nail in my nail down my nutrition and hydration strategy so i used uh, water in my uh, integrated bottle on the ventum 1.4 liters i had a 500 milliliter uh, bottle of precision hydration the 1500 strength uh, behind the saddle and uh, i used gels throughout the race two of them on the first run six of them on the bike and two of them on the second run so uh, that was uh, 10 gels in total yes uh, so uh, so 500 millimeters of precision hydration 1500 was what i had during the race i also had 500 milliliters of ph 1500 uh, in the morning a couple of hours before the race and i had one more of those bottles uh, the day before the race and in addition just to wrap up my uh, nutrition hydration strategy i also did use uh, a caffeine shot from science and sport uh, one hour before the race start uh, or perhaps 45, 45 minutes actually i would take it one hour before if it was started with a swim but for a duathlon a longer duathlon i decided to take it 45 minutes before and uh, three hours before the race start i took a shot of a beat it nitrate so that was it uh, and that's uh, a personal anecdote so but you can find how uh, you might best use electrolytes by taking the free sweat test on precisionhydration.com and get 50% off your order of electrolytes with the code that triathlon show 15 so that's that triathlon show 15 and big thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com forward slash tts Roka started as an idea to develop the fastest wetsuit on the planet. Uh, it was uh, kind of like a garage project in Austin, Texas. And uh, well, Roka did manage to uh, manufacture something that is at the very least a very, very fast wetsuit. I don't think there's any peer-reviewed research on which one is the fastest, so uh, can't perhaps make those claims but it's super fast and when you see the athletes wearing roca like uh, javier gomez and lucy charles then you understand that they're doing something right for sure and roca are taking that same attitude of uh, trying to make the best of the best uh, even better uh, to all the other product lines that they're going into like tri suits goggles swim skins eyewear including both sunglasses and prescription glasses so check out all that they have to offer on roca.com forward slash tts as in that triathlon show to get 20 percent off your entire order so the first question for today is from david who writes uh, michael this is a follow-up to another listener question in q a number 69 on planning your race schedule I've been doing off-road triathlons for three seasons now. Historically, I have aimed at a regional series instead of a single A race. Through events out of my control, I have an A race in early May. Being in the Midwest of the United States, this time of year has no tries going on. Practice races are something I have come to really uh, 
practice races or something I've come to really appreciate to try things. My question is, what do you do when there are no practice races before a race? Last year, I was still experimenting with my nutrition. I was getting closer, but could not tell if it was nutrition or lack thereof, or fitness or lack thereof that had me fade at some races. Love the podcast and your approach to questions. Any insight is greatly appreciated. All right. Thank you, David. So I would uh, say that there are three main things that you can control when you don't have any uh, any tuna races uh, locally which you can do which uh, i understand that's something that is out of your control but uh, what you can do is you can place a bigger emphasis than you normally would on simulation workouts you can also use non-triathlon races like duathlons running and cycling races and uh, use them to practice on some aspects of racing that you'll still find useful in your triathlons and finally, you can practice transitions specifically. So the first one of these, a simulation workouts, you want to try to plan in several of these workouts and try to really simulate the race closely. Obviously, you're not going to do the race in training, but you should work in a significant amount of work uh, around race intensity in these uh, simulation practices. And uh, this will allow you to practice things like your nutrition plan at race intensity, and also things like your equipment, even your mental strategies, your pacing, etc. And it's crucially important that you log your training and write some comments for each of these sessions so that you can uh, you can then have uh, have a log of what worked and what perhaps you might need to change for the following workout and then importantly for the race. The most practical way of doing these simulation workouts is probably the bike to run brick workout or you could even do a uh, variation like a bike run, bike run or something like that. But if you manage to squeeze in a morning swim and then get home and relatively soon start uh, a bike run brick, then all the better. It's even closer a simulation to a triathlon. And I would say that even if there would be several hours between a hard morning swim and then perhaps a, an afternoon bike run brick, you will still carry a bit of pre-fatigue into the bike, which will add a touch more race similarity to that simulation workout. So that could be a good thing to try to do as well. And uh, no matter how much you try, though, these workouts are not going to be perfect replicas of a race and uh, you don't need to try to force that but there's it's not going to be possible there are no other people there's not the same atmosphere and mental mindset and so on but there are some advantages to doing the more controlled version of simulation compared to racing which is you doing your own simulation workout you can be very specific with intensity and nutrition hydration you might not be able to do that with race dynamics and terrain in uh, in tune-up races so that might allow you to to really narrow in on what works for you uh, perhaps even better than you could in a tune-up race and a personal example i mentioned it in the intro with the precision hydration sponsorship slot uh, i raised a 10 60 10 duathlon the other day and uh, the initial plan before looking at the course profile was to hold uh, a power similar to what my 7.3 bike power will be uh, when uh, that 7.3 racing season starts but then i found that the course was 
always going up or down nothing flat on the entire course so the entire bike course uh, i was either way above the power target or way below it it was a very useful race for many reasons it was a very fun race an exciting race and it went well but it was not specific at all from the bike perspective at least for most of my uh, goal races the important races of the year so there are advantages or potential advantages to really controlling the simulation workouts yourself I would also recommend the the other thing that I mentioned, doing events that are not triathlons, so races, and that will allow you to get into that racing mindset. So duathlons, as mentioned, are ideal because that's multi-sport and you have both cycling and running. But otherwise, just pure running events, perhaps even pure cycling events, uh, could be useful. Running events, certainly. And uh, things that you can practice here would be... uh, for example, the mental practice of of getting into your race headspace, of pushing through pain and practicing the self-talk that uh, can get you through those uh, tough patches in your key race as well. So that mental race practice, I think, is absolutely critical. That's why I would recommend that you, if nothing else, find some 10K or 15K running races or even a half marathon. Uh, so uh, so that's one aspect but you could even practice things like let's say you're running a 15k or a half marathon uh, just take on way more energy than you normally would in just a pure 15k run uh, but practice the amount that you will actually be taking in in your 10k run in the off-road triathlon that you're targeting so uh, that will allow you to first get into racing mindset but also practice uh, practice taking on nutrition while running at a high intensity which is very useful so again these tune-up races in non-triathlon events are certainly less specific than simulation workouts uh, but it's still worthwhile to do it and uh, i would highly recommend that you find at least one or maybe two of these and the final thing is to practice transitions in training this is uh, of course a skill like any other and with some creativity in your setup and location you can do great transition practices that will shave off valuable seconds and positions from your race results practice alone isn't enough of course at the race venue at your key race you have to do a specific transition recon and mental practice for that particular course and transition area so that you are absolutely sure where to go when it comes to racing time but when you have done the actual skills practice involved in transitions like getting on and off your bike quickly and effectively getting out of your wetsuit in a couple of seconds getting into your running shoes in the blink of an eye then most of the preparation is already done and that final recon is uh, just the cherry on top perhaps not the cherry on top but it's at least much less to add when you already have those layers of uh, of the cake that are actually practicing the skills week in week out and the reason i mentioned transitions here is that because for a lot of athletes races are actually the only time that they practice transitions but it shouldn't be that way if you want to get the very best out of yourself you can get a lot of the improvements in transition speeds simply from the training that you do sure racing will help manifest those improvements it is an advantage to be able to do tune-up races 
but if you can do transitions in training i can almost guarantee that you might have you will have faster transition times than somebody who only is doing it in racing even if they do three or four tune-up races before you turn up to the same goal race assuming that you have done it more than he has in in training of course so i hope this helps david and uh, good luck the next question is from henning in sweden who writes hi michael a big fan of your podcast I'm a beginner to triathlon. I've only been training for a little bit over a year and completed my first Olympic distance race last summer. I'm 33 years old, averaging around six to seven hours of training per week, uh, which is varying a lot with uh, my overall life situation. I'm not super structured when it comes to varying intensity in my training. I mostly go on a day-to-day feel. Now to my question what's the point of resting in between intervals i started to do four by four minute intervals the problem is that i find it very hard to even get my heart rate up to over 90 percent of max heart rate Uh, and it's like my body needs more time of intensity to reach that level I have over and over heard that the main goal of high-intensity interval training is to accumulate as much time as possible above 90% of max heart rate. If that's true, why not just run 25 minutes all out, get the heart rate up to like 90 to 95% of max and just leave it there? By following that strategy, I can, without as much pain, accumulate at least 17 minutes above 90% of my max heart rate. do the interval, do the rest between intervals serve another purpose than accumulation of time close to max heart rate? Or should I keep following my just get the heart rate up to 180 beats per minute and leave it there for 20 minutes strategy and skip the intervals? Uh, to illustrate this, I'm attaching a picture of two heart rate curves. Uh, they are from cross country skiing, but it's just look, they look the same when I run. Uh, thanks, Henning. All right, Henning, thank you for a very interesting question. Uh, obviously, the listeners can't see your heart rate curves, but I'm sure we can all imagine what they look like. I can describe them. There is one continuous 22-minute effort that where the heart rate pretty quickly, actually, or gradually, I would say, but pretty quickly, rises to a level uh, fairly high uh, to 90% or more of uh, the max heart rate of 196 beats per minute that Henning writes that he has. Uh, and the other one is four by four minute intervals where the heart rate it ex- it increases in the same way as it does at the beginning of the 22 minute uh, two minute run but then obviously decreases basically down to baseline between the intervals and the same thing is repeated for each interval so the max heart rate for that workout is significantly slower as are the times in zone that Henning also attached so the the first reaction I have um, to your question is that if you ask the question, why not just run 25 minutes all out, and you also say without so much pain, then it probably means that you're not actually running that 25 or 22 minute effort all out. And if I'm honest, probably not even near all out, because that would hurt a lot. It's extremely painful to do that, and uh, those kinds of efforts should be reserved mostly for races and the occasional time trial to assess your training progress and, and training zones. So if we can assume that you're not running those 22-minute efforts all out, which I think we can, then chances are that regardless of what your heart rate is doing, physiologically, you might not be benefiting the way you think you are. 
the only way that we can know for sure would be to put you in a lab to measure your oxygen uptake your vo2 when doing that effort and uh, and then see what that is as a percentage of your actual vo2 max which you would also need to test but uh, i believe that if you say that it doesn't feel as painful it probably means that you're at uh, less than 90% of VO2 max. Maybe you are around threshold, which might be 80% of VO2 max. And it really is in terms of of VO2, not heart rate, where you want to hit 90 to 95% of max. Heart rate is a proxy for VO2. And that's why you have heard that you want to be above 90% of max heart rate. But really what we are interested in is being above 90% of VO2 max. So... Again, there is correlation there for sure, but heart rate is not the absolute truth of what is going on. For example, uh, one thing that might affect the long 22-minute effort is that perhaps you get to such a high heart rate because of heat buildup. That means that the body will need to work very hard to dissipate the heat you generate. Uh, but uh, that additional uh, blood that needs to go to uh, to the skin uh, to dissipate the heat it's not uh, gener- it's not going to the muscles to provide any oxygen so your actual oxygen uptake isn't reflected by the increased heart rate uh, the four by four minute intervals on the other hand may not uh, have this effect simply because the intervals are shorter and you have time to dissipate the heat with the rest and recovery between the intervals which is uh, a good example of uh, an answer to your question why do we need rest between intervals or why do we rest between intervals uh, for example so that uh, heat buildup doesn't limit our performance in training so uh, that's uh, that's one potential reason that you're seeing that high heart rate in the continuous 22 minute uh, run another important factor is the vo2 slow component and uh, the slow component refers to the fact that if you uh, work out at a continuous uh, high intensity but not maximal intensity necessarily so this could be for example your 10k race pace then your vo2 will gradually increase And why is this if you're going at the same pace or same power? It's because we gradually, it's it's basically a sign that we gradually lose efficiency of turning oxygen into energy. There are different hypotheses for this, but it could be uh, have to do with the fact that we need to use more type 2A muscle fibers later on in, uh, in continuous exercise, and those are less effective at producing energy aerobically. That's uh, one potential explanation. Uh, so uh, so that slow component might be another reason that during that 22-minute run, your heart rate goes up. Yes, your VO2 is increasing through that slow component. But the thing is that it doesn't mean that it's as strong a stimulus for improving your VO2 max because it's an inflated VO2 cost of uh, a bit of a lost efficiency, if you put it in simple terms. So to get to some specific advice, I do think you should do intral training because I think that that's the way that you, when you are actually, so when you are trying to accumulate time close to VO2 max, I think you should be doing intral training. Uh, but uh, what you can do, adapt in your current routine, is to increase your work to rest ratios. So it looks like currently you're doing three minute rest between intervals. Try two minute rest or one and a half minute rest instead. What you might might find then is that your heart rate increases dramatically in the second, third, and fourth intervals of that workout. And this could be, if it happens, 
because you might have a stronger anaerobic capacity. And when you take the relatively long rest that you do now, you might regenerate enough for your anaerobic capacity to be able to tap into that capacity substantially in each of the intervals. And that means that the aerobic system needs to pull less of a load and doesn't need to work quite as hard. But when you shorten the rests and limit the regeneration of anaerobic capacity, then each interval becomes more and more aerobic and your heart rate should be getting higher and higher. And uh, with those same principles, you could uh, just try shorter intervals, but again with high work-to-rest ratios. So maybe 40-20s, meaning 40 seconds hard, 20 seconds easy, uh, or 60-30, so 60 seconds hard, 30 seconds easy. And... Uh, and also another tip there is that if you've currently been, for example, walking your recovery intervals, then start jogging them instead. That's another way to keep heart rate up and keep the anaerobic capacity from regenerating too much. Uh, to get back to the main question you asked, what is the point of resting between intervals? Because I realized that I didn't quite ask that. Uh, it is that simply when you put people in the lab and you measure their oxygen uptake, their VO2, you can see very clearly that although there is no magic workout that we know about, intervals clearly seem to outdo continuous exercise in accumulating time close to VO2 max. And that is the stimulus. So time close to VO2 max is the stimulus that is generally accepted uh, that we're looking for with intervals designed to improve aerobic capacity, which we as triathletes are after. We generally uh, quite rarely try to improve anaerobic capacity. So for more information on this, do listen to my interviews with Professor Paul Larson and check out his book, Hit Science, uh, or sorry, his book is called Science, Science and Application of High-Intensity Interval Training. That's what the book is called. And his website is called uh, hitscience.com. So that's uh, the simple and short answer to your question. Uh, but I do want to offer a perhaps not very practical but very interesting piece of information uh, from uh, science. And this is a paper by Veronique Bia, which is called The Sustainability of VO2 Max, Effect of Decreasing the Workload. What they did was simply first measure the VO2 Max of the participants in the lab. And then they uh, compared two different protocols to see how they managed to get the participants to stay at VO2max the longest. And one was to simply uh, put the power on the cycling ergometer at the power associated with their VO2max. So let's say that uh, you do the VO2max test and you measure your VO2max and the power associated with that VO2max is 400 watts. Then they put that participant uh, to pedal at 400 watts for as long as they could and uh, measure how long they, uh, their oxygen uptake in that uh, time to exhaustion test essentially was at VO2max or very close to VO2max. But then the other test was to do the same sort of warm-up and ramp-up for to get to VO2max as in that first uh, protocol. But then as soon as they reached VO2max, they dropped down the intensity. So from, for example, 400 watts to 380 and they kept the intensity there, and actually they kept decreasing it as long as uh, the VO2 max stayed the same. So it, so it adjusted based on what the measured VO2 max was. It adjusted in real time, essentially, or close to real time. And then if VO2 max started to drop below 95% of VO2 max, I believe, sorry, if VO2 dropped below 95% of VO2 max, 
uh, that's when uh, the resistance was increased again so they put more they had to pedal at a higher power and that quickly uh, increased the vo2 measured to uh, the range where they wanted to have it again and what they found was that uh, when they you compare the power of these different time to exhaustion tests essentially when you have the variable power protocol they powered at an average of 238 watts compared to 305 watts for the constant power at the power associated with vo2 max so that's a massive difference that's almost 70 watts but uh, despite that the variable power group they had a time at vo2 max that was uh, on average 958 seconds which is uh, i'm not sure how many minutes that would be 13 14 perhaps compared to 136 so two and a bit minutes in the constant power at vo2 max group so that's a very interesting study and it shows that it's possible to to be at vo2 max when you're doing sub-maximal power but what you have to do but you probably have to do a hard build to first get to vo2 max which is what they did in this study and then by manipulating their power output they could stay at vo2 max for a long long time now another thing that i should mention with this study is that it was not a training intervention so they didn't do this for let's say three weeks and compare if one training method was uh, significantly better than the other in terms of improved performance it was just a way to measure how do you accumulate time at vo2 max so uh, i do want to finish with my final practical takeaway which is that I recommend intervals as the go-to thing to do if you want to get to an intensity close to VO2 max. A VO2 close to VO2 max. Go for intervals. You should try to accumulate 15 to 20 minutes of intervals at a power or pace that corresponds to your VO2 max. If you haven't measured this in the lab, no problem. Uh, just choose the intensity that you can sustain for somewhere between four to eight minutes as a rough guideline. For running, you might use two kilometer race pace as, uh, as the guideline. Aim for a work to rest ratio for the general listener from two to one up to one to one. But in your case ending, I would go for something closer to the two to one side of things. And uh, one final thing that I should say is that I'm personally gravitating more and more towards using shorter intervals, like between 30 to 90 seconds in duration, at least in the population of athletes that I coach, rather than the longer three to four minute intervals. And this is something that we could discuss for a long time, so I won't get into it right now, but uh, that's just something that I did want to mention as well. So I hope this helps. Good luck with your training. And that's it for today's episode. I will link in the episode description to the interviews that I did with Paul Larson and to the paper by Veronique Bia for those that might be interested. Uh, please do send in any questions that you will that you want answered on the podcast to michael at scientifictriathlon.com. That's Michael with a K, and you can find it in the episode description as well. Tune in on Monday for another great interview with uh, Ferris Al-Sultan, a former Ironman world champion and also the coach of Patrick Lange when he took his uh, Kona wins and uh, all his Kona podiums, actually, starting with the third place. If you are interested in coaching or training plans, check out scientifictriathlon.com. We have uh, uh, all our products and services uh, there. And big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Get a free hydration plan and take 15% off your order with the promo code show 15 
And thank you to Roka. You can find them on roka.com forward slash TTS. And that's where you can get your 20% discount code that you can use on wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, including sunglasses and prescription glasses. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.